Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. I believe I said in my opening statement uh, that I'm prepared to take on this responsibility for change within our game. I believe I've got the experience to do it. Should our board or the governance review that we've outlined our action plan suggest that I'm not the person, then I'm prepared to accept that. I think the uh, consensus view, Mr. Smith, may be it's time to go, but let's find out. Hockey Canada, I remember this, Hockey Canada admits to paying $8.9 million to settle 21 cases of alleged sexual assault since 1989. $8.9 million. Um, yeah. Just think about that. And uh, Sport Canada knew about the 2018 allegations, did nothing about it. So now we're watching as additional developments take place, involving or starting to pull additional national sports organizations into the picture. So the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage continued its inquiry into Hockey Canada this past week. Anthony House, father, Liberal Member of Parliament, member of the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage, is with us, and Lisa Hepner, Liberal MP, member of the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage, with us as well. Mr. House, father from Montreal, Ms. Hepner from Hamilton. Uh, thank you both for joining us. And uh, let me start with you, Anthony, if if I may. When the committee hearing first began, or the hearings first began, did you have a sense? that you'd be hearing what you have, like Hockey Canada admitting to paying $8.9 million in order to settle 21 cases of alleged sexual assault beginning in 1989. And this from a so-called National Equity Fund, uh, in turn funded by parents' fees for their kids to play organized hockey and receive the best of training. I started to think about the term National Equity Fund. If you ever wanted, Anthony, to create a benign-sounding name for a fund to pay out of control sexual assault settlements, I think that would do it. So did you expect when this all began that we would be where we are today? So if you had asked me before we had any of the hearings, the answer would have been no. I would have thought that Hockey Canada would have come far more prepared to our first hearing. Uh, They didn't. They um, basically came with very few answers and a lot of platitudes, uh, causing, I think, a lot of people to question uh, where they were going with, uh, w- with the way they were handling sexual assault cases, uh, which led to the minister uh, ending funding until they satisfied some requirements, which ended with Parliament then asking for another inquiry, and which ended with the committee then coming back and saying, we want to hold more hearings and calling them back, which they did. They came back this week. They were far, far more apologetic than they were last month but they still had answers that were just absurd. For example, they say that the board authorized the amount that was in the settlement agreement without authorizing the settlement agreement or anyone to sign it. 
but then they didn't have that minuted anywhere, uh, which, again, in, in corporate law, that's, that's absurd. They, they didn't alert the other defendants to the case, but chose to settle on their behalf and tell them afterwards. I mean, Roy, if you get sued, can you imagine somebody else settling on your behalf and not telling you? Okay. I mean, and, and, and the, 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 the meshugas, if I can use this, that's a Yiddish word that means craziness, just continued and continued in those hearings. Yeah. Uh, Lisa, did you have a sense, and I just want to pick up on what Anthony said, that they, maybe Hockey Canada came with, I don't want to say necessarily a sense of entitlement, but a sense that they're really not going to be able to touch us, they won't do anything to us because we've this has been going on for a long time, and there have been no consequences. Was there that? Did you have that sense? Hockey Canada is trying to put on a good face. Like uh, just shortly before our committee reconvened on this matter, we saw their action plan and they put out this um, very uh, smart graphics about how they're going to tackle this problem going forward. But it did sort of feel like a PR exercise. And like you saw in the quote, um, that you played off the top of your show, we heard the president of Hockey Canada saying he wasn't going to go anywhere unless the board decided that he was going to step down. So it's really still this insular view of Hockey Canada. Like, we have the funds. Uh, I read the editorial in the Star today. Hockey Canada's got lots of money. It's going to be okay, even with Hockey uh, Sports Canada cutting off the funding, even with sponsors walking away um, from the championships. Hockey Canada still has lots of money. There are lots of Canadians that sign their kids up to play hockey, um, and and so they're going to be okay. And and it and the, and you saw from that clip, Hockey Canada still um, feels it can deal with these problems internally with the same group of people at the top. Yeah, lots of parents have great concerns about what's happening with the money that they pay for their kids to be uh, coached and trained and to be part of the Hockey Canada and endeavor and organization. Lots of parents have concerns about that. Let me ask you, Anthony, about this. Sports Canada or Sport Canada knew about sexual assault allegations against junior national team members in 2018, but they did nothing to follow up with Hockey Canada. Not then and not now. Four years and a financial settlement paid through the aforementioned National Equity Fund later. This is mind-numbing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we were all flabbergasted that, hockey, that Sports Canada didn't alert the minister at the time and never saw fit to alert any of the next sports ministers uh, about these allegations. And I think, as the minister uh, noted in her own testimony, Sports Canada needs to be improved as well. And we have to, as a committee... Uh, come up with recommendations. We have far more control over Sports Canada than we do Hockey Canada to make sure that Sports Canada is far more attuned and far more prepared to assist federations in handling these type of claims. They shouldn't just be reporting them to Sports Canada and then Sports Canada comes back years later and asks, how did it go? Sports Canada should be there as, in my view, um, a force that assists all of the different federations with expert advice as to how to properly deal with these claims, how to take them seriously, and how not to settle a claim that could be insurable with, 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 by, 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 you know, without even trying to use insurance or, or without even being aware. Like what's, what was the most amazing, Roy? And, and this is where I think there's two issues. There's the, the, the way that Hockey Canada views sexual misconduct and views the equality of men and women and, and, and so forth, and that's a huge cultural issue. But there's also the business issue of here they profess that they settled the claim without knowing whether the underlying facts were true. 
I mean, how could you go forward and settle within three to four weeks a claim saying, but we have no idea if any of the allegations are true or not? It, 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 yeah, it's, again, it the, the people at Hockey Canada have a lot to be uh, ashamed of in, in this case. Yeah. Alisa, if I could just pick up on something you said uh, in your last answer, how satisfied are you with what you've heard from Hockey Canada and its CEO, Scott Smith, who spoke of a plan to increase the education of young players concerning off-ice behavior, and that those players would then deliver that message back to their own leagues and minor hockey associations. That's so fundamental. That should have been that should have been a cornerstone obligation from day one, and yet here it is, their plan for the future. Well, that's right. I mean, we all we all want to see hockey succeed in Canada. We want it to be a place where Kids can play a fun sport and get some exercise and learn one of our national sports and get out into the rinks and, and play hockey and have fun and, and have it a safe place. So, I mean, this has never been about destroying Hockey Canada. It's about improving it and making sure it's something that we can all be proud of. And, and the parents can feel good about paying into you because those are some steep fees. I know it's, when I was, uh, when my kid was young, I couldn't afford to put him in hockey. I was a single mom. It's not uh, very accessible to everyone. So, you know, my dream would be to make hockey more accessible and uh, easier for, for more kids to play because it, it can be a lot of fun. And somehow we've gotten away from the fun of sports and the companionship, and it's all about being the best and, uh, you know, um, winning and I don't know. To me, I, I think there's a little bit of that in this as well. Like, let's get back to a, a more accessible hockey. Yeah, also get back to being responsible to uh, to your to your organization, to your clients, who are the kids and the parents, and the objectives and the expectations of the country. Anthony, how does this happen? How do situations like these fly under the national radar? How do predators gain access to young athletes? And, and I'm going to tell you what I think, for what it's worth. The medals, the money, are often more important than the safety of the young athletes. What do you think? So I think two things. Number one, Roy, as you said, Rick Westhead from TSN reported today that 11 more women have contacted him uh, since the hearings ended on, on Wednesday um, related to hockey allegations. So, you know, the, the first question is, is it systemic in Hockey Canada? It seems to be. Um, you know, Hockey Canada refused to acknowledge that. They, they, they shimmy-shammied around that question at the hearings, but it seems to be systemic. And we need, I think, as a committee to look through all of our federations and determine whether Hockey Canada was an anomaly or, as we now may think, uh, was not such an anomaly. And, and I think it's, it's, it's due to a couple of reasons. Number one, we have volunteer-based boards in most of the smaller federations that are working very hard with no pay, um, you know, trying their best to run national organizations. And the training that they need, the professional advice that they need to deal with these type of claims may often be sorely lacking. And that is where I think we as a committee need to make recommendations. Um, we need to hear experts and we have to figure out how Sports Canada um, and, and, and the government of Canada can help all of our national federations deal with safe sport at all levels, ranging from, you know, house league to uh, elite athletes. And, and, and that's where I think our committee comes in and can really do good work here. So what's your mandate, really? 
our mandate, fortunately, is relating to sport is whatever our committee decides. Our initial mandate was to go and investigate this, this settlement in Hockey Canada based on the 2018 allegations. But we as a committee have the ability to broaden it to look at Hockey Canada as a whole and to look at all the other federations as a whole and, and to look at Sports Canada and to come up with recommendations to how we can better ensure that athletes throughout this country are properly behaving and that we make sure that women and men in all sports can participate safely at all levels. Yeah. Uh, Lisa, whatever recommendations you make as a, a committee after the inquiry is over, I hope that months of study, while the pressure subsides on national sports organizations, doesn't create a thousand-page report which immediately gathers proverbial dust on a thousand laptops. This is important. I, I, absolutely it is, Roy, and as someone who learned how to write short as a broadcast journalist, uh, <laughs> I'll do my best to make sure that our final report is something that's accessible to Canadians. One thing uh, that struck me in one of the interviews I did with an American journalist was how impressed she was with our parliamentary system and the fact that a parliamentary committee, along with, of course, some excellent investigative journalists, were able to strike such a chord and dig in and find out what happened and cause this national reawakening about what's been going on in sports in this country. And, uh, and I think shining a light on all of these examples is exactly what we have to do. We have to get to the bottom of it. We have to understand what's been happening. And we can only do that by talking about it, calling witnesses, and really getting to the bottom of things. Because once we scratch the surface and find out what's going on, the average Canadian and Canadians in general, of course, want to do something about it. We want our kids to have safe and happy childhoods. Yeah. Well, I can tell you why you uh, were able to find out what you did. You found them with their hand in the cookie jar, uh, proverbially, and uh, and they couldn't get the hand out in time. And, and good for us that they couldn't because this is, again, I'm going to say it's critical. Anthony, why don't we tell Canada's kids? I, to me, as somebody who has been part of sports all my life and, and swam at, a, at an elite level, um, you know, I think that kids need sport. I think that it is so important for every child to find the sport that he or she is passionate about and to participate in it and, or to participate in many sports at whatever level uh, they want. Uh, you, you know, there's nothing more important, I think, to succeeding in life than being able to multitask. And I found that sports taught me, you know, friendship, teamwork, how to multitask, and, and, and was just so important to my life that I would be horrified to believe that any kid left this sport because they didn't feel comfortable in that sport. And I think our goal is to make sure that every child, and as Lisa mentioned, affordability as well. I mean, there's some sports like figure skating that are just beyond 90% of Canadians' means. We, we have to wait, find a way to make sports available and accessible and, and loved by all our kids. You also have to tell them uh, that, they have, that they're empowered and that they cannot be uh, abused. I mean, I spoke uh, last weekend with Amelia Klein, who began the class action lawsuit against Gymnastics Canada. And, uh, and, and Amelia Klein, at 14 years of age, left gymnastics because, precisely, because of the way she was treated. And her parents weren't welcome to attend practices. And essentially, it was, let's just keep this between us and among us, and we, we can't do that. So then when I ask, what do we tell Canada's kids? Um, Lisa, we, Lisa, we have about a, about a minute here. What do we tell Canada's kids about what's going on right now? 
Well, I think the kids are watching, Roy, and I think that's the whole point, is once we bring it out into the open and kids feel empowered and know when something is wrong, right? Because if we're talking about it, it's not a secret. These things can't happen behind closed doors because kids are empowered with knowledge and they know what to look for and they know how to protect themselves. But it's sad that it comes down to that. And you can also tell them that Canada's government cares and we're there and we're going to get to the bottom of this. I don't think you've seen the end of our parliamentary hearings on sport. Interestingly, Abacus polling today released information. I just want to read you a tweet from uh, David Coletto, who's one of the principals at Abacus. He tweeted, here's the evolution of at Justin Trudeau's public image since 2013. More people dislike him and really dislike him today than during SNC scandal, trucker convoy, and any time during pandemic. First time, 50% plus negative in our tracking. That's Abacus, and that's from David Coletto. Uh, looking at um, a couple of numbers here before we talk to our guest. Approval of the federal government is sagging, writes Abacus. Today, 34% approved of the government's performance, down 4% this month, while disapproval has spiked to 51%. Up five points in two weeks, the highest number ever recorded since the Trudeau government was elected in 2015. Uh, what else do we have here? The uh, survey finds 51% of Canadians offering a negative view of how Justin Trudeau, of Justin Trudeau, which is the highest number we've recorded since 2015. Today, 31% have a good impression of Mr. Trudeau, which is also the lowest number we've recorded. All right, let's talk about all of these political developments. And we're joined by Professor Dane, Dwayne Bratt, political science professor at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Dwayne, no real surprise, I guess, at the abacus conclusions, but the numbers are interesting. Yeah, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of different reasons for this. Um, you know, some of it related to just how long Justin Trudeau has been in office. But I would go back to quoting James Carville and say, it's the economy, stupid. Um, inflation is high. Interest rates are rising. Uh, that's not good for any incumbent government. And uh, as a result, um, Trudeau has, has taken the heat for that. And uh, when you think about this time last year, it was all, you know, Trudeau, liberals leading in the polls. There was going to be an early election for him to uh, get a majority that didn't quite work out the way he wanted it to, but I think his advisors were correct that the economic situation was going to get worse before it got better, and he was probably smart now in retrospect to go early. Yeah, he he's certainly not done himself any favors in the last few months, particularly when it comes to oil and gas, when it comes to the uh, the issue of the carbon tax, when it comes to now the situation in the. Uh, in uh, the Prairie Provinces with fertilizer emissions. We're going to be speaking with uh, Premier Scott Moe tomorrow. Let me just ask the studio to remember to call uh, Jean Charest's office again. Call them again, guys. Find out what their plans are, if they have any plans, beyond September the 10th. I shouldn't be saying that, should I, Dwayne? Beyond <laughs> September the 10th. <laughs> That's when they decide who the Conservative leader is going to be. Um, well, it's, maybe it's, John Shirey is prepping for the debate he's going to have with two other people. Yeah, that's another one, isn't it? So the so the party okay's a third debate, which John Shirey wanted. He wants it bilingual. Pierre Polyev's not going, so John Shirey wants the party to find the Polyev campaign, 
uh, Dr. Leslie Lewis, isn't going to participate because she wants certain things entered uh, into the debate that maybe won't be. And so it's going to be, as it was in Calgary, Jean Charest, Scott Aitchison, and Roman Baber, or Baber. In other words, who cares? Yeah, I, I guess I'm being a little, a little, a little dismissive, but I'm not far off the mark, am I? No, you're not, and that's why Polyev's not going. If Polyev was going, you wouldn't be so dismissive of that, which is why Charest wants him. If you're trailing, and by all accounts, Jean Charest is is trailing, then you want another shot at the front runner. And if you're the front runner, you're not going to put yourself in any sort of, of jeopardy. So this doesn't just occur in leadership races. <clears throat> this occurs in elections all the time. Anytime, whether it's federally, provincially, locally, these local election forums, you know, how often do we hear the, the incumbent or the front runner just simply not showing up? And when they don't show up, interest drops. Yeah. Would you explain something to me, please? Why is Jean Charest trying so hard, except for right now, why, why is he trying so hard to become the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada? He's a nine-year premier of Quebec. I think it was nine years. He was premier of Quebec when I lived there for nine years recently. Uh, he's been the conservative, progressive Conservative Party leader um, nationally. He's doing extremely well. He has no issues financially. He was a, a major corporate lawyer. So why is he trying so hard to become the Conservative Party leader? You know, that, that is a good question, and I think there's two, two reasons. I think one is when politics gets in your blood, it's tough to get out of that, right? And so, you know, Jean Charest traces his career back to the 1984, you know, when he was in his early 20s and he was elected for the first time. Uh, and then he becomes a cabinet. So he's been a cabinet minister. He's been a party leader. He's been a premier. What he has not been is a prime minister. And so when your whole life has been politics, um, it's tough to get that out of your blood. It, it is a virus in that sense. And I think the other is he really dislikes the message and the trajectory that Pierre Polyev is, is trying to take the party. And so I think those are the two driving reasons why Sheree is, is doing this, because you're right. He doesn't need to do this. No. <clears throat> and it's like the boxer, you know, going back in the ring one more time. You know, this is, this is Ali, you know, in the mid-1980s, trying to replicate the Ali of the 1960s. Because Sheree, who, who was always kind of the young guy in politics, now all of a sudden looks quite old. He does. He actually does. And I, I just want to talk to the studio again. Excuse me, Dwayne. Guys, it's great if you know something, but I should know too. Can you write something in the comments box and let me know whether you have spoken with Charest's people, whether he's going to join us or not? Can you just put something in the comments box for me? Because I can't read your minds. Um, so is it a foregone, essentially a foregone conclusion that uh, Polyev is going to win the, uh, the conservative leadership? I don't think you ever say never. Uh, you know, things, uh, strange things happen in, in votes, especially given you've got 650,000 apparently CPC voters, and a lot of them haven't even voted yet. Uh, so there is a path, but I think that path really got hurt when Patrick Brown was expelled as a, as a candidate 
because I think Charest's path was sign up a lot of members in, in Ontario and Quebec <clears throat> and then finish ahead of Patrick Brown and get Patrick Brown supporters to join you in sort of an anti-Polyev coalition because he couldn't do it on his own. But all the people that Brown signed up, and we're hearing numbers of close to 150,000, the question is, are they even going to cast ballots because Brown isn't there? So if they're not going to cast ballots, then they're not going to put Sheree as their second choice. And so, you know, um, it, it's not a foregone conclusion, but it would be a major upset if, if Pierre Polyev is not the next leader of the Conservative Party. So Pierre Polyev becomes the next leader of the Conservative Party. Now he's going to be confronting Justin Trudeau in Parliament. Trudeau's looking at numbers like he's going to see today from Abacus, and he knows what's happening. He knows what the what the what the landscape is. Does he leave before the next federal election, which a majority of Canadians have told uh, Ipsos and Leger that they want him to do? Do you think? Uh, do you think he leaves? You you would think. You know, he's been a party leader since 2013. <clears throat> you know, he's been prime minister since 2015. And bear in mind, he has an agreement with Jagmeet Singh and the NDP to hold on until 2025, which is a long time away. And a lot can happen in that time period. So is he, did he create that pathway so he could, uh, you know, leave at his choosing? But as I just mentioned with Sean Charest, there's something about politics that gets into the blood of politicians. And they always want to relish one more, one more attack. You know, one it's more pretty, battle. It's a and, pretty nice and lifestyle. Con- and the contrast with Pierre Polyev is so stark. Is that enough to try to keep Trudeau in the, in the race? Yeah, I, I don't see Justin Trudeau doing too well debating Pierre Polyev. I may be wrong. You yeah. may prove, uh, you may prove me wrong, but I, I just don't see him having the legs in 2022 to do that. Yeah. And I mean, that, those are, the questions that, that, that Trudeau himself is going to have to face. I mean, it's not a good time right now, obviously, but time is on Trudeau's side because of that agreement he made with, with Singh. And so while inflation is top of mind right now, uh, is it going to be top of mind eight months from now, a year from now? Uh, I don't think, uh, I don't know what it will be. Uh, and I'm hoping we're not in a period like we were in the 1970s and early 80s, where inflation was an issue for for a very long period of time. Yeah. Um, but governments don't do well <laughs> with high inflation. And when you combine high inflation with higher uh, rising interest rates, I mean, that's that's a death knell for, for government. And it wouldn't matter what Pierre Polyev is pitching. He would just be seen as the alternative, and uh, they would toss... Trudeau out. But that's today. And, and you know, crystal balls are tough in a year from now. Yeah, he who lives by the crystal ball learns to eat ground glass, was the old line. Let's talk about the uh, the rise and the fall of Jason Kenney. The, the other night, there was the UCP leadership debate. And uh, please share your thoughts on that. And uh, what happens in Alberta now that Jason Kenney's leaving? So it's always tough to do polls. And I know polls have come out of the leadership race. But unless you have a poll of the actual members of the party, 
all it does is uh, provide some sort of information. It doesn't really help you to handicap that. But I have thought that, that Daniel Smith um, has been the front runner. And based on the debate uh, Wednesday night, the other candidates believe that Daniel Smith is the front runner because she was the focus of the debate. Um, she got a lot of airtime because the nature of the debate, the rules would be, I would ask you a question, Roy, you would answer it. And then I, as moderator, would say, and who on this stage do you want to debate? And they pretty much all said Daniel Smith. And so she was on there a lot trying to defend her Sovereignty Act, defending some really awkward, uh, in some cases, insensitive comments that she made about cancer patients. And uh, she was the real focus of the, of the debate. Travis Taves, uh, who is the former finance minister, finance minister under Jason Kenney, tried to take a lot of credit for the balanced budget um, that he produced and the surpluses that he produced. But he was being attacked by the other candidates because he is seen as, you know, Kenny 2.0, seen as the party establishment candidate. So I would say those two were really put on the hot spot on, on Wednesday. Is this the fall of Jason Kenney or is this just a, uh, a chicane in his career? The big one. I don't know how he comes back from this. I think his original plan was to leave federal politics, come back to Alberta, be the conquering hero, and then go back and, and save the, the federal conservatives from those dastardly liberals. Uh, but how do you do that when you've been drummed out by your own party in the conservative heartland of Alberta? So on October 6th, we will know who the new leader is. The moment that that person is sworn in as premier, Jason Kenney is no longer premier. And I don't know what the next step of his career is. Uh, I don't think it'll be in electoral politics, but I don't know what the man is going to do now. Yeah, it won't be any tag days for Mr. Kenny. He'll do He'll do very well for the rest of his life. He's been extremely successful in the political arena. So what happens as far as, uh, in the minute or so we have left here, Dwayne, what happens as far as Alberta politics are concerned? Where's the province headed? Because it's hugely important in the dynamic of this country now, perhaps more so than it has been. Well, whoever becomes UCP leader is premier of this province for um, on you know after the October sixth vote for about seven months. Uh, we have an election scheduled in May of 2023, but this government is also dealing with a massive surplus. Like we're looking at estimates of anywhere around 12 to 14 billion dollar surplus because the price of oil is just so high that money is just flowing in. But that's not being equaled with jobs. And so it's not quite a jobless recovery, um, but the jobs that are coming back are not the $85,000, you know, uh, truck drivers in Fort McMurray, rig worker jobs. And so there's a huge opportunity um, for the provincial government with all of this money um, but there's still a problem because that money okay. isn't flowing throughout the entire province. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, 
Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. It's now pulling in the some other national sports organization. This whole issue is pulling them in. Athletes are speaking out. Um, additional national sports organizations, as I said, are in the spotlight. Alpine Canada faced a class action suit in 2019, and that was brought by our guest, Alison Forsyth, two-time Canadian Olympian, eight-time Canadian Alpine ski champion, chief operating officer of ITP Sport, an organization promoting a safe sport environment. Uh, Alison Forsyth also brought forward allegations of sexual abuse against former Canadian national ski team coach Bertrand Chartrand, found guilty in 2000. Listen to this. He was found guilty in 2017 of 37 sex-related charges against skiers ranging in the age from 12 to 18. And he was paroled two years later. You know, that sort of uh, sentence really inspires confidence in the justice system, doesn't it? Alison Forsyth joins us. Alison, thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me. How how are you reacting personally based on your experience as an athlete, uh, an athlete who is also abused um, during the process and by an individual who is very high in, in, in the organization, Alpine Canada, in this case, and, and, and what we're hearing, what we've been hearing for the last couple of weeks about Hockey Canada, how are you personally responding to all of this? Well, thank you for asking that. Um, you know, I, I'm a survivor of abuse, as you mentioned, and, and a survivor of a very overt cover-up of that abuse by a national sporting organization. I'm a mom of two young um, competitive hockey players and a, now a safe sport professional. So personally, um, I've, you know, had extreme, to be honest, just my heart has been pounding and I've been in a very anxious sort of triggered state over the last two weeks. However, I'm not surprised. Um, I know firsthand from having been in this work, whether it's, you know, as an athlete advocate um, or a safe sport professional, that the issue is massive. And I also recognized and saw um, Hockey Canada's lack of leadership and an opportunity that they had when the former minister came into play um, to be leaders in this space and they chose not to. So I can see it from many angles, Roy, but personally, um, it's hard. It's hard because whether a victim is a member of an organization like I was um, or a member of the general public, it is um, incredibly difficult to have an organization, you know, try to silence you in whatever way, way, shape or form that is. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, Alison. And I do appreciate that um, what's happening now, I'm sure brings back very many personal and difficult memories for you. Um, what exactly, how exactly did Alpine Canada approach you when you let them know what was going on? Share with us as much as you can, please, of, of what was happening. You, you haven't been, uh, haven't been uh, reluctant to talk about that. What happened to you and what was the response from Alpine Canada? Sure. So, um, I mean, I, I blew the whistle in our case. Um, it was at the World Junior Championships in 1998. Um, I had a, a physical um, therapist, a female just to mention for the first time in two months came on the road with us and she took one look at me. My, you know, my hair was falling out. I'd lost about 10 pounds and um, she just said, tell me what's going on. And I just burst into tears. So I disclosed to her um, at which point we both recognized that um, through various circumstances that there were multiple victims. So to be clear, this was a man who was um, sexually abusing four out of 10 young women on the same team who were all living together in, in a house at the time in Europe. Um, 
and me and what what happened i mean i could go into some some pretty scary details including him you know hiding in the woods and um, in camouflage and some very strange bizarre behavior went on but i think the biggest thing is you know i was i was quite literally sat down in a room uh, um a room in a house <laughs> a bedroom with the head of alpine canada at that time and my sexual abuser and they both looked at me and said you know allison we need to work together on this because if our sponsors find out, we won't have a sport anymore. So that was a deep level of coercion, um, and that is exactly what occurred. And um, I, I felt incredibly silenced. And what I want everyone to recognize is when you are a victim of, of, of abuse, if you have lived it, you know it. And it is not as simple as, um, well, I'm just going to keep pushing and doing whatever it takes to get justice because – Ultimately, there's complicity. You feel complicit in the situation for whatever reason. Um, you feel shame. You feel blamed. You feel guilt. In my case, you know, he had an incredible power over us. We were all incredibly brainwashed by this person. So I'm also dealing with finding out that this person had also been doing this to three other young girls at the exact same time. So as you can imagine, my mental state was not um, healthy. And I went on, Roy, to compete, and I've had people say to me, you know, Allison, at least you had a very successful career, as if one, that made it okay. Um, I competed in a coping mechanism, a PTSD coping mechanism of anger and hatred for, for everyone and everything around me, to be honest. I lost faith and trust in, in all authority and men. Um, and to be frank, I the only thing that drove me to the podium of the World Cup was to prove him wrong because he had me so convinced that I would never make it without him that I stood on my first podium and I earned the first podium and it was the first podium for a Canadian female in that event in I think 25 years. And all I was thinking was take that because I knew he would be watching it at home. So I only share this level of detail for everyone to understand the absolute complexity of safe sport in our country um, and the deep level of victimization that that can occur, which is why we need a critical shift and a critical change. Yeah, I I admire you, you so much for what you're doing, your willingness to speak about what took place in your life, what was done to you, and it's all, as I understand it, and as I perceive listening to you, it's about taking care of the kids who are out there now and keeping the the organizations responsible. You know, we, we, what we're hearing about Hockey Canada, I know it's personal to you from the national skiing perspective. Um, we have different levels of issues here. Athletes who are alleged to have committed gang assault with a national oversight body, arguably closing its eyes and paying instead of holding players and the organization itself to account. And we have athletes who are sexually, physically, and emotionally subjected to abuse within their national programs. And these issues are taking place simultaneously. This just didn't happen overnight. These situations developed because... Lots of folks are around uh, with both eyes firmly shut. So, I mean, I, I think you recognize this, Roy, but I currently work as a safe sport professional. Very proudly now, my company, ITP Sport yes. and Recreation, are partners with Canada Soccer. So we're very excited to support Canada Soccer in the future. Now, with hockey, what I want to share is um, we see thousands of complaints come into our call line from multiple organizations. Very, very, very few of those have anything to do with sexual misconduct. 
So the fact that they're willing or they were forced to disclose, you know, 21 cases had been settled. I think anyone listening can respect how how much it actually takes for a victim to get to a point of a settlement or to go to a civil suit. I can only imagine how many complaints they've actually received. Now, on top of that, the universal code of conduct for maltreatment in sport of which, and I want someone to help me <laughs> to get them to produce this, of which Hockey Canada is supposed to be abiding by, has eight forms of maltreatment, physical abuse, psychological abuse, harassment, hazing, discrimination, bullying, and sexual abuse. So remember, I'm saying a fraction of complaints that we see are have anything to do with sexual misconduct. So we are talking about a massive amount of cases and complaints that must have come across Hockey Canada's desk. And this is an organization who made a conscious decision between 2018 and 2022 to not abide by the Sport Canada mandate to use an independent third party. They simply chose not to. I believe they did that because they, their ego thought they were better than the rest of the national sporting organizations because they knew, which was true, Sport Canada has a poor track record of actually holding national sporting organizations accountable. So I believe they made that conscious decision to not let anyone in to see what was actually happening. So that is why, and I wish I had a different statement, that we and I truly believe that that leadership is not the leadership that can see this change happen. Because even if we don't even look back to 2008 or 2003, we only have to look back under this leadership within the last four and a half years, and they have been resistors of anything to progress safe sports. So from a professional standpoint and a personal standpoint, and I know way too much, um, I will just share that it is of my opinion that they have not been leaders. They have been resistors. So, Allison, let's talk about the issue of safe sport. Maybe we can talk about it or have you speak about it within the context of Soccer Canada, which had its own issues in 2008, and you're now working with the organization. How do you take a dysfunctional group and turn them into a more responsible organization. What do you do? Oh, that's a great question. So, so myself and my business partner, you know, Elan Yampolsky, he comes from 15 years of safeguarding experience. I want to share that we created our company um, just under two years ago, even though we both previously worked in the space, uh, because we knew when we were in the work with the federal government and trying to support federal jurisdiction around safe sport that it was such a massive issue and there was going to be so much need. And that's why we created who we are. Um, so we work with organizations of all levels. Something I want to share, and this will be relevant to the Canada soccer situation, is the federal government, and I'm sorry, I know we all go to the polls, and this is probably obvious to us as voters, but sometimes it's not as obvious to how it affects our children. The federal government can only force the national level to do anything about safe sports. It's up to that national sporting organization to then decide to mandate and provide as a membership requirement for their provincial sporting organizations and their clubs. So it's not the federal government that is going to protect our children. Hockey Canada needs to decide to systemically implement safe sport practices right down to the grassroots level. We are the experts in this space to do that and, and very proudly now are, will be working with Canada Soccer um, because they are committed to be putting in place safeguarding measures um, and safeguarding of all all members, because we also have a massive issue with 
officials' abuse right now in this country. Over 70% of Ontario officials have left sport. If any organization will tell you they cannot recruit new referees or officials, they're tired of being treated how they are. So there's a lot of different audiences that are also affected by safe sport. So Canada soccer, listen, I, 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 this is my personal reputation. I respect, I'm an athlete advocate, a safe sport <laughs> advocate. I'm a, a survivor. So I do not, and we do not go into these types of relationships lightly. I by no way want to take away any feelings or justice that is felt to be unserved by any victims of any abuse in any sport. I know how that feels. What I am here and what we are here to do with Canada Soccer is from this point forward, create the world's best safe sport programming. So we will be looking at all of their current processes with a very, very um, scrutinized lens. Um, they are open their door to let us in to say, quite simply, in addition to the report they just received back from McLaren, what else do we need to do and how do we ensure that we are keeping every soccer athlete safe right down to the six-year-old stepping foot onto the soccer field for the first time. Yeah. Do you uh, have a sense that Hockey Canada is in any way feeling shame or repentant or uh, guilty, uh, or, or do you have a sense that there's a, some entitlement going on when you have the current CEO saying, well, I can deliver what needs to be delivered, paraphrasing, of course. They don't know, and it's not okay. I mean, the false sense of security that exists now in the sport landscape is ridiculous. And I'll say this as someone who spends all year on a hockey bench at the AAA level. What is happening in our rinks is horrific still, and any parent in hockey can tell you. They're still fighting. They're still yelling. There's still beratement. There's bullying happening in the dressing rooms. There is horrible things happening at the grassroots level of hockey. So... They don't know the gravity of their own issue because what they did is they hired one person to work within the space and only around two months ago. What they need to recognize is that if they're going to do this themselves, and I absolutely hope they don't because they need safe sport experts, but they need about 40 people to be working on this issue. So the fact that they are not only resistant to the change to this point, now they think they have what it takes to do it themselves and they've only hired one person so far, it, it should show all of us that they, they do not even know what's happening within their own organization down to the grassroots level. Does government have a role to play, or is government better out of the way? The government has a role to play, absolutely, when it comes to what's happening right now, which is iron fist, sanctioning. We do not believe that the answer is just pulling away funding, because ultimately, yes, that sends a message. But if you're not Hockey Canada, I mean, they had their message sent loud and clear by their sponsors. But if you're not Hockey Canada and you have your funding taken away, you are actually preventing athletes from getting on planes the next week to compete. So it is about time that they're doing something. But I do not right now have the faith that the federal government even understands safe sport. There is not a lot of experts in safe sport in this country. And so we're doing our best to train as many people to work on this as quickly as we can. Um, surrounding ourselves with experts in all different areas. Uh, but number one thing that organizations and the government can do right now is to say, we don't have all the answers and we, we need help. Okay. ITP Sport, what's your website? ITPSport.ca. ITPSport.ca. One final question for you. What do parents tell their kids? Because somebody has to communicate with the kids.
Somebody has to explain to the kids what's going on, what their rights are, what their protections are. Somebody has to talk to the kids. What do you what, what do you tell them? I'm glad you asked this because if you hadn't, I would have asked if I could say something. So um, I'm so passionate as a parent. So here's the thing is that we currently do not have in place any athlete training at the grassroots level. I don't know if it's because we think we're scared that kids can't handle this conversation. But as a parent, you need to do two things. One is you need to hold yourself accountable and know that your child is smarter than you think they are especially if they're on TikTok these days and they see things and they know things and you need to hold down that conversation. My son needs to know and does know what the rule of two is and why it exists that he shouldn't be alone with his coach. We don't train children or educate them on that. We just tell the coach to not be alone with the child. So unfortunately right now, and I hope it shifts, a lot of the responsibility of keeping your child safe falls to you as a parent. I 100% think that parents should still enter their children in sport. Um, but they need to go to their organization tomorrow and they need to ask what safeguarding safe sport practices do you have in place? Do you follow the rule of two? What sort of anti-bullying programming are you running? What sort of training are you running? What sort of criminal background checks do you have? They need to do their own due diligence with their local organization, and that's where they need to put the pressure on. I, I, have, to, I have to jump in just because the clock got us, but I hope you'll come back. Of course. I was just looking at the uh, comments from uh, former senator and chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Murray Sinclair, who spoke appreciatively of Pope Francis, but also was direct in his challenge. And I'm only going to read this to you before I say hello to my guest, because it relates to what the translator just said, what uh, Senator Sinclair said or wrote, despite the historic apology, the Holy Father statement has left a deep hole in the acknowledgement of the full role of the church in the residential school system by placing blame on individual members of the church. It is important to underscore that the church was not just an agent of the state, nor simply a participant in government policy, but was a lead co-author of the darkest chapter in the history of this land. Driven by the doctrine of discovery and other church beliefs and doctrines, Catholic leaders not only enabled the government of Canada, but pushed it even further in its work to commit cultural genocide of indigenous peoples. In many instances, it was not just a collaboration, but an instigation. And the word genocide, you've been hearing in news, I'm sure, was spoken for the first time today by uh, the Pope as he was on the plane heading back to Rome, and it was in response to a question by a reporter. On a very important week in this country, and uh, joining us to speak about the developments, Chief Cadmus Delorme, Chief of Cowess's First Nation in Saskatchewan. Remember, it was just over a year ago that 751 unmarked graves uh, were found located at the site of the former Marival Indian Residential School, and Marival was open from 1899 to 1977. Chief DeLorme, thank you very much uh, for joining us, and what's your overall impression of Pope Francis' time at uh, Indigenous communities? Good day, Roy, and, and audience. This past week uh, was uh, intended to be about healing, uh, about hope, and um, time will come when survivors will uh, explain uh, what what uh, part of the journey they're on. Uh, everybody heals in their own way. Uh, the Pope came, Roy, a uh, number fifty-eight of the Truth and Reconciliation Calls to Action. Uh, the intent was was here. And uh, his three stops, uh, strategically trying to balance three different areas of Canada where Indigenous people um, live on all parts of this country. 
I, uh, we at Cows's had our events. Uh, we watched live together, survivors, Roman Catholic faith-goers, Cows's First Nation and friends. Um, it, it was mixed feelings. I, I will uh, leave your questions, Roy, to better explain uh, the past week. Yeah, uh, p- please, uh, please share with us what the feelings were that uh, that, that you heard, because when I when I read um, uh, Senator Sinclair's review, certainly he was he was appreciative, but also critical. And I've heard the criticism from a number of uh, of people over the last few days who've been in touch with me, Chief Delorme. What did you? What were you hearing? The uh, the truth must prevail before and when we really address reconciliation. And we can't get lazy in addressing reconciliation and truth. I, I, just as a person who is here to implement truth and reconciliation and drive hope in this country for a stronger relationship between Indigenous people in Canada, I found that number 58 was not fulfilled. Number 58 of truth and reconciliation is for the Roman Catholic Church's role in the spiritual, cultural, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse of First Nations, Inuit, Métis children, and Catholic-run residential schools. We, we did not hear that in the acknowledgement. It was almost like he, the Pope left a, a deep hole in the acknowledgement of the full role in the Church. And so, you know, the Pope did what the Church, and he felt the intent was. Now, today that the Pope is back at the Vatican, or en route to the Vatican, it, it's up to us as Canadians to pick up where we are at, own it, and address it together so that we could truly get to reconciliation. Yeah, keeping in mind uh, that the church was in charge of more than 60% of the residential schools in Canada, and uh, Chief Delorme, what the, what the Pope said while he was in Canada was not spontaneous. That would have, some of it might have been, but uh, much of it, certainly the speeches were, were well-crafted prior to the Pope ever leaving uh, ever leaving Rome. So he came and he spoke, and you feel that um, Section 58 was not properly dealt with. And uh, does that leave us... I, I understand that we have to work out our issues together, and I think there's more of a, a willingness and a sense of the need to do it now than there might have been a number of years ago. But does uh, does that leave us um, with a bit of a hole from the Vatican? I mean, I... I I have to tell you, I just feel disappointed. Uh, Roy, I, I'm not a survivor. I'm a chief. I'm a spokesperson. I'm a proud First Nations person and a proud Canadian. I felt the intent and the hope was that the Roman Catholic Church's leader in this world, the Pope, was going to come here and, and set the tone on on the Church's role. I feel we had a missed opportunity. But give or take, Roy, we're here. It's it's Saturday. It's it's past. It's it's it. The Pope did what he felt was. It's now up as as Canadian Roy, where we pick it up from here, and we we nudge it as fast as we can. We 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 pick it up. There's Roman Catholic Church faithgoers that are listening right now across this country. The unmarked graves set a ugly feeling in every Canadian in this country. Roman Catholic faithgoers, um, you know personally from who I've talked to have have had different feelings as well the Pope did it, it what he felt was right I feel it's a missed opportunity Roy but we can as Canadians figure this out and just implement um, all we can in truth and reconciliation
Yeah. Do you think, Chief Alarm, that we have a, a real national understanding of what these residential schools really did, what they what the what they perpetrated against First Nations? Because, and I don't want to keep coming back uh, to the issue of what the Pope should have said and, and didn't, um, in, in my view, for whatever that counts, and not much. But but do you, but do you feel that we have a, a true understanding among Canadians of what those residential schools perpetrated? Because one of the one of the really key issues here is how the survivors of those schools leave this week, what they go forward with tomorrow and into next week and the weeks and the months to come. Uh, Roy, I love coming on your show. We, I've, you and I have talked, I think, four or five times into the audience listeners. I know they're not always. Uh, in tuned every weekend but you know i have explained truth many times in different perspectives i don't want to rephrase everything that i i tried to say before but the truth is in this country we we've we were not taught the truth as canadians our education system across this country to baby boomers generation x generation y uh misinterpreted it so now today the unmarked graves uh has opened up everybody's mind to 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 bring the church forward you know, the Catholic Church was not just an agent in residential school, but was it was almost a co-author in the darkest chapter in this history. And, you know, we, we have not just a few, um, it was an institutional effort to remove children from their families and cultures, Roy, in the name of Christian supremacy in what we inherited today. It didn't happen today, Roy. We inherited this. But as Canadians, we must understand that residential school survivors, they have all right and all purpose to have this hurt right now. And I don't believe this past week really closed that hurt for many. It might have actually reopened it. And we have to understand every residential school survivor in this country and family of residential school survivors is all on a different healing. Let's stand beside them and better understand when we drive in these urban cities and see the odd um, First Nation person that, that might be below the poverty line. We're not asking for pity, Roy. We're not asking for anybody to feel sorry for us. We just must understand that vertical lineage in our Indigenous was, was, was addressed in a negative way, and we inherited this. Yeah, well said, Chief. Um, we have to reach out to each other. And uh, if there is any cynicism or if there are preconceived notions that... Um, we need to reflect on and and, uh, and deal with ourselves. I think we need to do that. We need to reach out to each other. We are neighbors. We are, you know, fellow residents of this piece of. Uh, I'm going to get too philosophical here, but this piece of, of of this planet, of this earth, and we we can do it moving forward together. And uh, I was just hoping that this week was going to be better. I've said enough, Chief Alarm. What did you? Uh, how did you explain the the Pope's visit to your kids? Mm-hmm. Thanks, Roy. Uh, my father attended a uh, Roman Catholic-run residential school. Uh, he never talked about his experience. When, well, I shouldn't say never, Roy. When, when I got older, when I got to university, and I started to learn the truth, because I didn't even learn about it in, when I went to my First Nation school, because it was still not talked about, is I, um, I started to tell them about their grandpa. In our language, we call him Musham. He passed away in uh, 2017. And I started to tell them that their Musham... I uh, went to a residential school, and uh, my kids are very young, Roy. I got a five-year-old girl who would probably be the most to conceive the moment right now. And um, I, I told her that, that she is going to be whatever she wants because her mushroom taught me 
um, perseverance taught me to, uh, you know, find the good in things and, and moving forward and, and healing one day at a time. What can we not afford to do? One of the thoughts I had about this, the papal visit and the apology, I thought it can't be left to just fade into history while First Nations still continue to deal with unsafe water and substandard housing. What can we not afford to do going forward now? I, I believe, it, and I'm, I'm one opinion, Roy, I believe uh, ignorance is going to be our biggest uh, barrier moving forward. Um, secondly, there, there are so many challenges in, in this world right now. In Canada, externally, Canada's role in this world, uh, the relationship with the Indigenous people it is vital for, for Canada to be a true leader in this world internally. But at the same time, ignorance, I feel, is, is going to be our biggest challenge. The kitchen tables in this country uh, must make sure that the truth prevails when it comes to Indigenous people and Canada. And there are really good resources, Roy, out there. Like, I'll, I'll promote a book right now. I get no royalties on it, Roy. I just wanted to be full disclosure. But there's a book from Caroline Hilton called um, Indigenomics. It, it talks about how economics and investing in Indigenous people in this country is going to be the best opportunity moving forward. And lastly, Roy, the institutions, the provincial governments, the federal governments, the municipalities, the urban settings, they have to assess their resources to make sure that Indigenous people are getting their vertical lineage stronger, daughter to mom to grandma to, and, and so forth. Do you have confidence in uh, the, let's say, the two more senior levels of government in this country, federally and provincially? Uh, I'm going to speak openly, right? I, I work with the, as a chief with the federal liberal and I work with the provincial, very conservative. I'm not going to call the SAS party conservative, but they're, they're very conservative um, uh, dominant. And so, you know, I get to see two different perspectives. You know, governments are our governments and parties have, have mandates. I, um, the, the way houses plays and the way my role as a chief plays in this country is when we get told no or, or, or maybe next time, our role is to go in there and to educate. And, you know, when I've talked to Premier Mo and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's cabinet, um, they were very open-minded about things. Uh, Cowsis is doing child welfare reform right now. We have jurisdiction over our children in care. We treat our children from Cowsis in care in northern Ontario, in Regina, on Cowsis and in Vancouver, all the same from our healing. And the provincial government and the federal government both um, honored that. So I, I do believe we all have to adjust our compass, both Indigenous and not at this moment. Uh, we both are right and we both have challenges on both sides. But I think when we all change our attitude at that table to focus truly on the hope moving forward and, you know, the past does have history. There is mistrust. But at the end of the day, Roy, what do we have as humans? Is we have hope, and and that I believe has to be our strongest attitude. Yeah, you know, uh, Chief Delorme, one of the concerns that I've had for years is that we don't really, truthfully and in a detailed manner, educate our young people, educate ourselves on the history of Canada. We 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 just there. I think there are only five provinces that have a mandatory history curriculum. In their, in their primary and secondary school systems. I could be wrong, but I think it's only five. 
that is that is something that we need to do. We need to be able to openly discuss with one another, understand everything that took place and the context in which it happened, so we can move forward with an understanding of where we are, where we were, where we need to go. Would you agree? Absolutely. Our education system is is what is setting the minds and the attitude for, for this country moving forward. Uh, I do believe that, you know, the, the provinces and territories that do have it in their curriculum will see better results when it comes to the um, ignorance and accidental racism. Um, to the ones that are not doing it, um, you know, I do know that universities are, are more man- mandatory today as well in some of their programs. So, you know, we're getting there, Roy. Are we getting lazy at it? I believe we are. I do believe we have to understand. And I go back to the unmarked graves that, that happened at Kamloops at Maryville. And there are 130 residential schools that were in this country. And we've addressed less than 30 of them with their unmarked graves. Almost all of them, Roy, do have unmarked graves. When we talk about schools in the early 1900s, not all schools are, are the same as residential schools. When your residential school has a gravesite beside it, you do know that we missed the truth in how Indigenous people were treated. So it is a really tough thing to address. But, you know, the more we address the truth, the more we will have better reconciliation moving forward. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.